Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. All right, people, you know that sound. It is the Unfiltered Band means yes, another episode of Unfiltered coming your way. This one will go down officially. Episode 179. Met centric today with the season opening and always a topic for every team, no matter who you root for. Who will be the godsends, the unsung heroes, the list at Unfiltered Return, the top 10 unsung heroes in the history of the METS, right? H E R E. And uh, spelling, because uh, reading is fundamental. And welcome and thank you fundamentally for being on board the Unfiltered Revolution. You can get on board on Twitter. At Case Stir, jump into the bio, get on the YouTube channel. And of course, most of you where you are on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere iTunes where you get your podcasts. Uh, we, of course, myself and uh, my good friend back on the program helping us with these Mets lists because he is a historian and I am the other guy. Uh, that's uh, Brian Wright. You can get it at Brian Wright 86, author of New York Mets All-Time All-Stars, Mets in Tens, uh, freelancer at uh, my old stomach grounds at MLB.com, and a historian for Mets Marias who do a terrific job. Brian, good to have you back on the program. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Casey. I uh, hope you're doing well, too. I am doing well. I'm looking forward to uh, debating what seems to be, and these are the best in doing talk radio for many years. These are the best talk radio type topics because there, there is no, hey, this guy's war is better than that guy because we're talking about unsung heroes and you're dealing with where they stood in the test of time, where they were needed for their team, how they have kind of lived on beyond their years, what moments they had. Really, this is as much a kind of throw it at the board and debate it as you could possibly have because there's no right answer either way here. Yeah, this is a very objective list. Uh, it's like anyone could have a number. Any of these one through ten could be number one and or could be number ten. It's just it's is it's in fact it's almost like just a ten that we chose. It's not it's it's even hard to to rank these. So uh, to each their own, and and I think all of these at least qualify as as unsung heroes. And and how you judge an unsung hero is really up to you. And look, Mets are going to need it this year. Uh, certainly, first of all. Every team needs it every year. You never know who it's going to be. You never know when it's going to be. You know, I don't want to bring up, uh, you know, World Series, you know, the Royals, everybody remembers the Hosmer and all that stuff. But Christian Cologne had his first hit of the postseason in the most important time. We all remember, you know, the, um, uh, you know, Cabrera and Sid Bream play with the Braves many, many years ago. You think about how many times guys step up in spots where they're in the bullpen, but they're a starter or they're coming in and they're having that that performance of their life. They're not expected dot, dot, dot to be there during seasons where guys come up and they play and they have, you know, in the NBA, you would say play big minutes, right? That they're not expected to play. And you have that every single year. You don't often know what those questions are going to be that you need answered when the season begins. And because of what the situation is with Edwin Diaz and the importance of Edwin Diaz, which is why he signs a $100 million deal, and him going out, we know right off the bat that everybody going to move on down. Because whether it's Robertson or Adovino, then the Raleigh's and you go on backwards. Now during the season, you're talking about from the back end of the rotation where the Petersons are, the McGill who gets sent down, who will be back up at some point. That depth now much more into play right off the bat for the Mets heading into the season Without even starting the season, you know you lost one of your best players already. Yeah, the bullpen comes into immediate focus for obvious reasons. And whether it's – and the bullpen is the most unknown of, of all the, the areas on team. You just, like, never know who steps up. You never know who regresses. Um, you know, Edwin Diaz is a, is a perfect test case because we all thought how 
you know, fantastic he was in Seattle when he came over in 2019 was a disaster. 2020 wasn't that much better. And then he slowly improved and then 2022 was historic. So I'm not saying anyone's going to turn to Edwin Diaz this year. That's, that's highly, highly unlikely and almost impossible to do. Um, but there's a possibility that someone in the minors uh, who was in the minors last year steps up. Um, there's a possibility that David Robertson becomes the closer. It's also very likely that someone gets traded or someone is brought in uh, from elsewhere to become the closer. So um, this is an area that naturally is the, the area where someone really does step up or regress. Um, and that's going to really have to be the case here. And I think, you know, we always say, we always hear in these previews, oh, look at this team, look at that team. You know, if there are no injuries, this is, there are always going to be injuries. This is, this is what's ridiculous about when people talk about starting staffs and rotations and going like, well, if they go the whole season without injuries, well, they're going to. And that's why you build up that pitching depth. Pitching depth. That's why you have David Peterson, Tyler McGill, people like that. Yeah, I remember. Look, there are times I remember actually being at Dodger camp many, many years ago, talking to Ned Coletti. They had like eight starters. And there was a week before the season, and the day I was at camp, and this is how old long ago it was. It was Billingsley, Ted Lilly were two of the names. So this is I don't even know how many years ago, but they lost three guys in a day. I mean, as soon as you say we got too much depth, all of a sudden it's gone. For the Mets, you got to think of it this way. I've seen, and we've had recently scenarios where teams have thought we're done before the year because of an injury, and all of a sudden, it's far from it. Adam Wainwright was gone before a season. Cardinals thought they were done, and he was all the way. Now, they didn't win the World Series, but they got all the way to the World Series, and he was their biggest cheerleader. When they weren't the Guardians, they were the Indians. Michael Brantley was the easiest, best player at the time, pre-Jose Ramirez being Jose Ramirez, on that team. He was gone. He was their biggest cheerleader in the playoffs. They go all the way and make it to the World Series. These things happen. And for the Mets, they're going to need guys to step up. So seems like the right topic. Let's be positive. Let's talk about 10 of these, these great stories. This is hearkening back not to ones that make us crazy or not any situations that make us feel dull and down, but situations that make us feel good. Like, for example, the fact that, as always, we're presented by our good friends at Bet Bet BetOnline remains your best source for all your college basketball betting this season. Get analysis of every play, every prop, and every point at Bet Online. Latest odds, bracket contest, team matchup, and game trends at Bet Online. Updated odds for everything from live games to conference championships, right through to the final four of the championship game. Bet Online, your college basketball headquarters this season. Head over to the website today. Use your mobile device to join and sign up and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Be sure to use the promo code BELIEVE, that's B L E A V, to receive your bonus. BetOnline.ag, that's BetOnline.ag where the game starts as we get started here and at number 10 on our list of the unsung heroes, Jose Valentin. And one of our favorite teams that we've discussed going back to 2006 and that run that that team was on, they had a lot of unsung heroes, but I would argue this guy doesn't get talked about still enough for what he did becoming a cog who offensively had some huge games down the stretch and into the playoffs and in the postseason as well, Brian. Yeah, I mean, I did not realize this was his second to last season in the majors. As he was the this was his age thirty six season, and he he played in the two thousand seven season, only played fifty one games. So this was really his last significant season. He had played before with the White Sox, with the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, and the year before with the Dodgers. So, uh, and he was not the opening day starter. Uh, Anderson Hernandez was the opening day starter at second base, uh, and I don't know at what point he became, you know, Jose Valentin became the regular starter, but. It was pretty obvious why. 
Um, and as you had pointed out, numbers, you really can't be like, oh, look at this guy's OPS or, or their war or something like that. It's really, it's, you know, it's more of just like the eye test, I guess. And, you know, there are a lot of veterans on this team, but he was, he was definitely one of them that brought the veteran presence. Um, and, you know, I, I, when I think of Jose Valentin's specific game, I think of the division clincher. I think he hit two home runs in that game. Um, and that was, you know, one of the big game offensive performances that you were talking Steve about. Traxel, so he really six supplant- nothing against the Marlins, yeah. right? If I recall, my guy Cliffy with the catch yes. in left field to end it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's. I mean, he really supplanted. Um, he took over that second base spot and, and held it for throughout the the rest of the season into the postseason. Yeah, Valentin to to me was, you know, look, you're down towards the bottom of the order. He had six or seven, but here's a guy who. Had some pop. I don't have it in front of me. He hit 17, 20 home runs somewhere around there that year, Eight, right? 18. Oh, right in the middle. There you 18. go. 18. Uh, yep. But, had, I mean, look, provided some pop. He was, to your point, a presence. And it seemed like he was a guy who could come up clutch. Ironically, he and another name, which I think everybody knows is coming at some point, both ended up hitting at the bottom of an inning after a certain catch that was made with the strength to be here. And both of them with chances to really become unsung heroes or sung heroes, if you will, in that game seven against the Cardinals. And it doesn't work out. But Valentin, to me, belongs on that list. I thought he was he was one of those, again, subtle moves where a lot of bang for the buck that you paid, where you didn't get much. You didn't think you were getting much. But he ends up being your starter at second base every day. Really did a good job for them. At number nine, a guy who, to me, there are certain pitchers and there are others in the, the history of Mets time, like Chad Bradford, who come into this list, where the way they pitched is part of what you remember, not just how they pitched in terms of effectively. And certainly the uh, the mechanics of one Terry Leach fit into that mix in terms of pitching for the New York Mets. Yeah, I don't know how many more submariners there are in Major League Baseball. I'm sure there are some. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of oh, – there's a guy in the Marlins. Anyway, um, but yeah, so to set the scene for 1987, I mean, the pitching staff, which was so great in 86, I mean, maybe the greatest pitching staff in Mets history, uh, became totally decimated. Uh, Dwight Gooden tested positive for cocaine at the beginning of the year. He was out for uh, in rehab for two months. Um, Bobby Ojeda went down. Uh, Sid Fernandez went down. And here comes Terry Leach, um, who had been with the Mets in 81 and 82, um, came back, was there in 85, pitched only six games in 86. Um, starts, he's, he's, you know, in emergency is needed. Started 12 games that year in 87 and went 11 and one. And I think he was unbeaten if you want to, you know, count this as a significant uh, step, but we will, uh, went unbeaten for a good stretch. I mean, maybe like into late June or something like that, or maybe in, into July. So, I mean, he was really a godsend uh, when the Mets really needed it. Um, they were, you know, falling way behind the Cardinals and he kind of kept them afloat. And then the offense took over and they almost caught the Cardinals, but, but came up just short. But Without him, they wouldn't have been close. Yeah, I, look, and it, to me, you go back to submarining, and and it, he was it, almost a character in the way he pitched because his pitching had character. Mm-hmm. So I think, it, but sometimes when you have something happen where you think about Doc, my gosh, 
to have a guy step in and there are a couple of other pitchers on this list that fit this category where you're getting so much more than what you thought you were going to get. You don't need them to go win a Cy Young. You don't need the fact that they're fitting a way bigger role than they were supposed to is part of it. Now, sometimes it's just that they fit a role to a T and that's the case in number eight because Pedro Feliciano, who was the compliment to Chad Bradford, who together to me, look, you could think back to if, if you're, depending on the age of the fan, if you go back to late 90s, you think about Turk Wendell and Dennis Cook, right? They kind of won better that that pair, if you will, a few years later, because I thought Bradford and Feliciano, they were, they were as good a setup pairing as you had in the big leagues for at least a year or two. And Feliciano specifically against the Phillies, and what I always think about with Pedro Feliciano was how many times J.C. Romero, who I think got knocked for steroids at some point, ended up just mauling the Mets in the years where the Phillies beat the Mets. And we almost kind of won up the Phillies by throwing back at them a guy that they and nobody else seemed to find a way to hit. Feliciano was brilliant when he was at his best for the Mets as a setup man. I mean, I just think about, you know, coming into face someone like, like a Ryan Howard, like that would yeah. be the, like the perfect time to use him. And they did. And, you know, it worked out a lot um, because Ryan Howard at that time was hitting 50 home runs and, and they could, you know, the Mets had a guy who could, who could thwart that. Um, and, and we see like a lot of lefty specialists, of course, still, even with, you know, the three batter rule, still, still have a lefty specialist, but he was you know, a lefty who was much more than that. I mean, he was, he made 64 appearances in 2006 with a 2.09 ERA, 78 appearances in 2007, 86, 88, and then 92 the next three years, which led the league each year. So he wasn't just like, oh, come in and face, you know, Ryan Howard or, or come in and face, I don't know, name a guy on the Braves who's, you know, who is a, a left-hander. Um, he was just a guy put out there and, you know, pitch just about, it seems like, every other day uh, when needed, you know, Chad Bradford result would also be out there, but um, yeah, you could definitely always count on, on Pedro Feliciano, even when the Mets were kind of falling apart. He was still, he was still there. Yeah, Back in the days where I guess Brian McCann was Brian McCann pre later at the end of the day, Brian McCann. Uh, but you know, it's interesting because, you know, we always remember, and I think about a guy who wasn't unsung, but you, we talk about acquisitions. One of the other lists we did, Billy Wagner and what he became you know, part of where the Mets got exposed in that series in 2006 was having to use, it seemed like Willie Randolph, who I thought, look, I thought Willie got a raw deal, did a better job than people give him credit for. Mm-hmm. But his obsession with Guillermo Moda was something else. I mean, I don't even know how many times. Guillermo Moda, who was most known before that for the whole issue with Piazza when he was on the Dodgers in spring training. Guillermo Moda, I think he made an appearance even in games that he wasn't even appear. It seemed like he was in every game because anytime that they went past Feliciano or Bradford or Wagner, they got into trouble. And mm-hmm. you know, to me, Feliciano was so, so valuable. But to your point, they wrote him like Seattle slew. It was very much like Joe Torre used to use the Quantrills and the, all these guys' arms fell off and Scott Proctor and many others. Feliciano was a workhorse for the Mets. He sits at number eight. So number 10, Jose Valentin, number nine, Terry Leach. Number eight, we've got Pedro Feliciano, and it's Tank at number seven. Todd Pratt, I was at the game where he hit the home run that Steve Finley, I forgot his name for a second, that Steve Finley couldn't catch against Arizona. And you think about the moments, the two moments that come out, there were plenty. 
because Todd Pratt was look, the Mets have had some very um again character driven backup catchers really it, you could do a whole show on the backup catchers <laughs> that the Mets have had Ramon Castro who kind of looked like piston Honda at the end of punch out his head was a lot bigger than the rest of his body and he had that voice at the very low voice I mean they've had some characters but Todd Pratt's two moments probably did stand out above anything else one, that home run clearly. The other one is not allowing Robin Ventura to get to second base during the Grand Slam single, which was a few days later. Todd Pratt had huge moments and became a fan favorite, but he was a fan favorite even before that moment, Brian, because it did seem like even during the year when he would come in, he was always a guy on the days where he would play, where he may go one for 10, but that one was always going to be a big knock for number seven, Todd Pratt. Yeah, I think this was kind of the time when you realized you needed, you know, two catchers. I don't want to say like, you know, it's like you need, you know, two running backs like in football, but but Mike Piazza was, you know, getting he was so valuable that that you almost needed to, to protect him in some way. So his you know, his offense was so important that uh if he got nicked up it was better, you know, it might be a situation where you needed to protect him for like a day or two. So you needed a guy uh, behind him just in case for that one day, uh, you know, one out of once a week to, to spell him. And Todd Pratt was that guy. And again, numbers aren't going to like stand out. It's the moments, it's those big hits. Um, it's, you know, the 1999 playoffs. Um, I remember drawing the walk in that game that before the Robin Ventura uh, Grand Slam single uh, that he uh, caused, uh, uh, I guess. But um, I'm, yeah, but I remember him drawing the walk that tied the game. Uh, against the Braves in the 15th inning. Um, but yeah, he is the definition of unsung. I mean, it was a pizza pizza delivery guy uh, and worked at, you know, like Bucky Dent's baseball school for a year. Oh yeah, that's, that's uh, right. Was that, that a, right. Base, that's, was that's that a baseball for all that's of 96? He start, yeah, he started with the Phillies and then went to the Cubs and then was out of baseball and, and comes back to the Mets. And, you know, it's, it's he had... 160 plate appearances in 1999 and 190 more in, in 2000. Um, but yeah, it's just, you just remember, yeah, he, he's still a fan favorite. I can't remember. I assume he was at old timers day and I'm assuming he still gets, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, a he's lot still, of, a lot he's of recognition. Still, he's yeah. still a fan favorite. He, he's yeah. still, there are, there are a couple of guys on, on our list. I would say him, uh, number four, that's on our list. There are a couple on our list that like they get, look at the biggest to use the wrestling term pops because just, how they were. Todd Pratt loved being a Met. I mean, he was a guy who was just, he was very much ringleader in the clubhouse, all the celebrations. He's the first one out, top step. I mean, he, he was in it, even if he wasn't playing every day. And you kind of admire that because they needed that. And during that time, uh, my old, geez, I used to work with him at OV.com, but the late Daryl Hamilton, uh, Lenny Harris, Todd Pratt, there were some really, really good character guys during those 99, Sean Dunstan, when he came over, that was a really underrated part of that team was how many veteran guys they had who had been everyday players playing big roles, playing smaller roles for them. Top Pratt, a guy who is uh, fitting and deserving on our list and fits in at his jersey number at number seven. The guy at number six wore 47, and I want to sit there. I almost want to, if the screen was big enough, do, do the whole thing he used to do in the batter's box. But I would just say this, in, in the lore of when Randy Johnson pitched against the Mets, there were two Randy Johnson killers. I jokingly say Daesung Koo, who if anybody has not seen should go YouTube, his, his double, and then he scored from second like on a bunt 
It was an unbelievable yeah. inning and like one of his only starts as a Met, but against Randy Johnson. But Joe McEwing, Super Joe, the Randy Johnson killer, which it became funny every time they would play against Arizona, he'd be in the lineup or when he was on Houston against Randy Johnson, no matter like who was playing, he'd find it, find a way in. He is probably the definition of a utility player before Brian, the utility player existed. I feel like in the time I covered the game, Ben Zobrist, I thought was the beginning of the change of how that was used because he went from that guy to being an everyday player and then became a world series hero for two different franchises. And that kind of changed things a bit. But to me, before that, Joe McEwing is one of the first real examples we had for, I don't know, you tell me how long, at least a decade, where for a number of teams, New York, St. Louis, everywhere he played, you literally could find him anywhere in a diamond pretty much behind the other than behind the plate. Yeah, I'm looking at his baseball reference. And in 1990, this is with St. Louis when he was uh, a rookie. I mean, he was playing second base. He was playing left field. He was playing right field, center field. Yeah, he was, he was at third base. Everywhere but catcher and pitcher, mm-hmm. <laughs> you could find him. And the same thing uh, with with the Mets. I mean, I don't like. I'm looking to see if maybe he even um, pitched or played behind the plate. He, he might have. I mean, but that's why he has to get know. the Super Joe moniker because Super of Joe. That. Yeah. And he was, you know, and it was just hilarious to see him going up against Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson, however, you know, six foot ten, and and Joe McEwing, uh, five foot ten. I'm looking them up here, um, and yeah, would would destroy him and and drive Randy Johnson to to a fury. I remember it was a game in like May of 2000 that he 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 really owned him, um, in particular, um, but yeah, just a guy that that you could you could plug him in anywhere and was you know the definition of like as you said like a. You think Jeff McNeil plays a lot of positions, second base, third base, left field. I mean, Joe McEwing takes that and raises that up a notch. And Jersey always dirty. Like from mm-hmm. day, like he only knew one way to play. He was a gamer. I mean, he was a guy who was meant like yeah. Joe McEwing probably should have been on the Red Sox. Like he was just one of these guys that like if you ever was a dirt dog, that was kind of the way he played. But it's why, and I think he's going to be a very good manager someday. It's why he's become, I think he's up to a bench coach now. I mean, he's been a coach in the league for a long time. He, he's he's a, he's one of those dudes who really understood the game. Every manager loved him. Tony La Russa loved him, uh, which is why he ended up on that White Sox staff when he was back over there. But he was he was a great man. I love Joe McEwing. Ten, Jose Valentin. Nine, Terry Leach. Eight, Pedro Feliciano. Seven, Todd Pratt. Six, Joe McEwing. And Al Weiss with one S at number five, who makes the list next. And he kind of splits kind of right between the – there's a lot of 2000s in here. And we go back a little bit old guard, Al Weiss at number five. Yeah, and we talk about Todd Pratt and the big moments. Um, Al Weiss is purely for the 1969 World Series – uh, in particular, Game Five. Actually, the whole World Series. He, I think he batted over 400. But get, but Game Five in particular, um, hits a game tying home run in the seventh inning. Uh, he had hit two home runs all season. They were both in one game at Wrigley Field, and so he had never hit a home run at Shea Stadium. And he winds up that day, Game Five of the World Series, hitting his first home run all year at Shea Stadium. Uh, pretty good timing. Uh, but yeah, tied the game, and then of course the rest is history. Going on to win uh, that game five to three. Um, but that that's really his moment. I mean, he comes over in the trade with the Chicago White Sox. That also includes Tommy Agee, and we all know what a hero Tommy Agee was in the World Series. So um, if we want to, you know, divert to like great trades, I think we've we 
brought that one up uh, when we talked about great trades, but uh, this was the payoff for, 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 for Al Weiss, at least in the uh, 69 World Series. And when you're part of big moments, that's what happens is you get, you know, whether you come in and you play a small role after a trade or not, you then, it exponentially, look, the heroes of October, we see the commercial every year, mm-hmm. but that's what happened. Our, our number four was, you know, a, a hero seemingly from the day he stepped on the field and then he had his real hurt because literally, and, and not, a, not a field here because he was even a hero playing in Japan for the Mets, how all of that fits in. Because I remember watching at three o'clock in the morning when he had a game winner, when they opened the season over there. But everybody remembers Benny Agbayani, the home run against the Giants. I remember Benny Agbayani at number four for a lot of reasons, namely the Benny and the Mets, which was fantastic with the whole Elton John thing. But I remember I was sitting, it was on my, on my birthday in 2000 um, when they ended up winning uh, the NLCS to go to the World Series and the game against the Cardinals where uh, they, ended, they what is it? I think it was game five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At left field, I was sitting up in the upper deck with my father and two of my friends. First of all, it was shaking legitimately. Like everyone's always like every state. No, I mean, it was first of all, it's Shay, so it was old, but it was literally shaking. And Benny Agbayani running around, like just celebrating out down by left field, and how beloved he had become, despite not knowing at times if there were three outs because he had some issues. He wasn't always perfect. Benny Agbayani got as loud a pop at Old Timers Day as seemingly anybody and he wasn't on a team that won a world series he wasn't a heroic player he was never the best player on the team he took sid's number i mean there was a lot not to love but he's as lovable of a franchise guy who kind of did the most i guess with the least and i hate saying it that way but he wasn't the fastest he wasn't the strongest he kind of had a great story and he became mm-hmm. a fan favorite and beloved player very, very quickly. Yeah, I think it was the story that everyone really gravitated to. Um, and he was, you know, we, there are a lot of 1999, late 90s, early 2000s Mets on here. And it's just because that was the team and the character of that team. I mean, you had Piazza and Alfonso and Al Leiter, but you had these components uh, who would contribute. And Bobby Valentine loved these guys. Uh, and really utilize them. And I think Benny Agbayani was the classic, like Bobby Valentine project uh, where he just like really had faith in him. And I think that game in Japan in 2000, uh, if I remember, he was like on the verge of being cut, being sent to the minors. And did he, Agbayani was like, you know, I don't, I'd rather you trade me than send me to the minors. Cause you know, he played, several years in the minors. So, um, and then he hits the home run. Ricky Henderson does Ricky Henderson things. He's cut. Benny Agamayani has a spot on the roster. And then, you know, then the 2000, the rest of the 2000 season happens, forgets the outs, but he comes back. I think the, the game he forgot the outs was against the Giants. And then he comes back in the division series at that home run against the Giants. So uh, really all comes full circle. And that really capped his, uh, 
his popularity is his, his, his that was like the apex of his of his popularity and he look he, he looked like an nfl fullback like he just like everything about him was huge smile great charisma lovable was great with the crowd like very much again love being met fans love mets who love being a met starling Marte may only play for these four years with the mets or whatever it is but if he's healthy the whole time 20 years from now, Met fans are going to remember him as a beloved guy, assuming he doesn't do some Timo Perez in the, in the World Series at some point. Because he is he loves being a Met. He loves it, New York. He's he's sucking up all of that. And Met fans love that. Like, that is mm-hmm. what they're about. And Ben Abayani was all about all of that. It's why Cespedes became such a fan favorite so yeah. quickly. Because they yeah. want to see you embracing New York and the spotlight and Benny Agbayani loved being a New York Met. He pretty much was the antithesis in terms of energy of number three, who pretty much was like, like a flat line, but that's why he pitched so well. It's also why no one remembers him except you and me who have put him on. I don't know every list. I mean, unless we start doing a list where guys couldn't have worn 30 or higher on their Jersey and he went 35, I believe then he would be ineligible. We may have Rick Reed on every list we've ever done, but Rick Reed is at number three. And when you end up in a rotation where you're always behind a one and two that are supposed to be an ace or a pair of aces, right? You end up, he very much had a Chris Bassett kind of a feel to him, right? In terms of just deep into games, right? Was Hey, uh, the first two guys may have all the flash, but I'll be the guys in the sixth or seventh inning over and give up two runs, very much like the year Bassett had last year, is kind of what Rick Reed was like every year. But I always remember him as as much a model of consistency, Brian, during that time period as they probably had in any of those rotations during the years he was there. Yeah, I think we need to have Rick Reed on the show. <laughs> we love I know. Him so much. We need to find Rick Reed. I, I mean, nobody even knows. Nobody even, you don't hear much about. He wasn't an old timers day. Was he invited? I guarantee you, he's the type who was invited and wanted no part of it. So, you know, it's Rick Reed. He's from. Uh, oh, he's, I'm looking at where he's from. He was born in West Virginia. I don't know if that was where he was from, but uh, yeah, but that's, a replacement player. I mean, even yeah. when he came in, no one liked him because even his own teammates. Because of the way yeah. he came in. Think about that sell. Hey, I'm a repl- – yeah. I mean, nobody wanted a scab playing on the team. And he's the number three starter for how many years? Seemingly everyone around him changed on every other side. And he always was there in that three spot in the middle. Yeah, you can really sell uh, yourself to a team if you are <laughs> if you perform like he did. I mean, he won, he won uh, 16 games in 1998, uh, had a 2.89 ERA in 97. That was, that was his first year with the Mets. Um, but yeah, if not for the player strike in 94, who knows where he would be? He certainly, you know, wouldn't be a New York Met and wouldn't be uh, performing up to the level he did uh, where he was just, you know, he was like Chris Bassett in that he went deep into games. He was not like Chris Bassett in the fact that he went, he pitched quickly. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he went through games rather, rather fast. Um, but yeah, I remember those 97, 98, two big years was an all-star in 98 uh, was an all-star in 2001 as well um, and pitched a lot of, you know, important games. Uh, I remember the game in 99 against the Pirates, in which the Mets were two games, there maybe one game out uh, with two to play, and he pitched a complete game uh, that kept the Mets in it. Uh, of course, they, you know, went on to go to the one-game playoff, but that was 
a hugely important game that that was a you know a must win in every sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think he pitched in the one game the Mets won in the World Series as well. So you needed someone to, to pitch an important game. Uh, you know, you had guys like Al Leiter, you had Mike Hampton in two thousand, but Rick Reed was old reliable to put it, to put it with for lack of a better term. They were always trying to find somebody flashier, and, and you know, Rick Reed. Look, I, you know, it's like. Who gave him the nickname the poor man's Greg Maddox? Met fans, I think. I, you know, I don't know who, I don't know, I don't think it was Tom Glavin. And I don't think it was John Smoltz. I don't think it was Bobby Cox. Because he really wasn't great. He was maybe even a poor man's Mark Burley when you talk about the speed of the game and, you know, lacking the flash and all of that, you know, in terms of what he did. But very much like Maddox, because he, look, he worked with the changeup specifically a lot. And, he was a guy who did not throw very hard, but he really understood how to look. He, he was, you know, pre-Bartolo Cologne. He was a strike thrower. I mean, that's what he was, why he worked quickly. And he could pitch to contact. And at the time, when you've got the Ray Ordonez, look, the Mets had the best defensive infield, obviously, in 1999. Ordonez would have a lot of, you know, easy plays, seemingly he'd screw up. But certainly shortstop position was held down during most of the Reed years by the guy that you'd want there, the best defender the Mets have ever had play that position at shortstop. So Rick Reed fitting on the list. We'll have him on any list. Eventually we'll have him on the show. We'll have to find him. Uh, Jose Valentin at 10, Terry Leach at nine, Pedro Feliciano at eight, Todd Bryant at seven, Joe McEwing at six, Al Weiss at four, Benny Agbayani at four, Rick Reed at three. And at number two, the man responsible for, and this is legitimate in 19 years in press boxes, the only time I ever got caught cheering in a press box, which is a no-no. The only time it's ever happened to me and I couldn't control it. And I, I screamed because I did not even understand what I was watching was during that catch that Andy Chavez made on that ball that was hit by now Hall of Famer. Congrats to Scott Rowland. Um, in the sixth inning, I want to say, was it the sixth inning of that game? Oh, I think yeah, it was. I think so. um, Andy had a huge smile. He was the classic example of, if you play me every day, I will get exposed. But if you don't play me every day, and seemingly every time he played like his former teams, like the Nationals, he used to destroy. He, anytime you would start him, he'd get three hits, steal a base. He always found a way to swing. And Carlos Delgado used to, I've seen him joke in, in interviews about how Andy would swing at every high fastball trying to hit home runs, even though it didn't actually happen. But Andy would always get hits when he was in the game. And he was kind of that fourth outfielder who Met fans would call FAN every year saying, why isn't this guy playing every day? And then you'd realize when he played for two weeks straight, it's time for whoever was really playing to get back in there. And then he had the moment and the catch and the strength to be here. And, you know, we may unfairly have him too high on the list. Maybe because of that, maybe not. But Andy Chavez had one of the greatest moments in the history of the New York Mets that could have been greater because he came to the plate with runners on base in the bottom of that inning. And I always say the same thing, and I've said it to you before. He gets a double in the gap. I think it was first and third, maybe. It, it was one out. He gets a double in the gap. Him and Valentin both batted that inning. If he drives in a run and we don't have Howman and, and Molina, Andy Chavez would be an even bigger hero than he is already but still beloved, and of course most of it because of that catch in 2006. I mean, he would have been the first statue. I mean, you would have uh, built – I mean, they, we would – I don't know, but, you know, fans would have created one. I don't know. 
Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he was a guy that you had to use in spurts. Like, you know, sometimes fans don't realize that, like, as you mentioned, if you play someone every day, they're not as effective as if you play them, you know, sparingly. And at certain points, uh, they're, be- they're better utilized there. And, and Andy Chavez is a great example. Um, you know, Jose Reyes was, you know, the, the spark plug definition. He was that. But Andy Chavez was, you know, also that. Um, so therefore, he kind of gets overshadowed in terms of what he meant to the team. Um, and he certainly fits that distinction uh, from 2006 to 2008. Uh, Chavez brought his own kind of energy, like off the bench uh, and on outfield, def- you know, defensively in the outfield, whether it was that catcher, you know, just playing out there uh, whenever needed as a replacement. Um it certainly helps with everyone on this list to be on a good team because if you contribute, it means more to the overall cause. Um, but he is another one that's like his numbers are nothing to, you know, go, Oh my goodness. But you don't need numbers for, for Andy Chavez to show his impact. The game, I, you know, obviously the catch, which is like, you know, would have is still one of the, yeah, still one of the great moments would have just been out, you know, gone through the stratosphere if, if they had won that game. Um, but there was a play or there was a game. I remember he, he walked off a game against Colorado with this just ridiculous drag bunt. Um, that's like one of the, that's the, the, the forgotten Andy Chavez moment. I think it was 2000, it was 2008, 2007. It was after the catch, but that's another Andy Chavez moment. I remember he, um, you know, if we use the Rick Reed is a very poor man's Greg Maddox. Andy Chavez was a very poor man. Shane Victorino. It like at, at like his height in like for a week he looked like he was a great defender in, in center. I know he made the catch and left, but then he was a terrific center fielder, and usually was the best defender that the Mets had in the outfield, even though he wasn't playing every day. Which is why he'd find himself in as a defensive replacement. Right? He had the speed to steal, although he was one of many Mets. Now Brendan Nimmo, the latest that the Mets have always had guys who seemingly can run but don't. So it's never like he stole 40, 50 bait. He could have. He had plenty of speed. And he had a little pop. But what Andy did was he gave them depth. And the depth of that team was one of the best things that it had going for it. I mean, we talked about Jose Valentin. When you think about Andy Chavez, there were a lot of guys. I mean, really, the 99-2000 version in 2006-2007, which I know we don't bring up because of what happened at the end, but for 95% of that season, those teams had a lot of guys who would step into roles and would find a way to make big plays. And a lot of them are on that list. When you think about the Benny Abayanis and the Todd Pratts and the Andy Chavez and the Jose Valentin from both of those groups of teams. But at number one is a guy who ends up in the best rotation the team's ever had, ends up, you know, out pitching the best pitchers that the team has had pitching together. Again, not Tom Seaver, not Jacob deGrom, not Pedro, although as a Met, he was not that anyway. But Dwight Gooden and Ron Darling were that one-two punch with that rotation that was the best rotation they had. But in 86, when it came down to it, Bob Ojeda pitched better than they did. And in big spots, he outpitched those guys. And it never gets remembered that way. Very much like, the look, the Braves had this same scenario. John Smoltz, almost in every spot, in the big spots, outpitched Sklavin and Maddox. But he was John Smoltz. So everybody still remembers that. Bobby Ojeda at number one never seems to get remembered outside of he was part of it. 
Like it's him and Sid, right? And they're in kind of like a, one group, right? And then here's mm-hmm. Doc and what he did. But Bobby Ojeda was as good as it gets. And in this season, that season, he outpitched everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you could make a case that he is not a, by definition or whatever de- definition you want to use, an unsung hero. But I think when you look back to how he was perceived when he came to the Mets, which was a back-end starter, for, you know, third at best, fourth, fifth starter um, coming over from the Boston Red Sox, you could not have conceived what he would do for the 86 team. Uh, he went 18-5. He had the best ERA, had the best ERA plus, which was 140. Um, and the big, you mentioned, the outpitching Gooden, Darling, any other Mets pitchers um, coming through in game two and the NLCS against Houston after losing the first game. Uh, in game six, he gave up three runs, but but hung on and allowed the Mets to come back in the ninth inning with three three runs of their own and then win in the 16th. Uh, game three at Fenway Park, after the Mets dropped the first two, uh, he pitches a brilliant game. Um, so he went from being like a middle-of-the-rotation starter to being the ace in a sense. And I think because he, you know, 87, he got hurt. 88 was was good. Fortunately, got the terrible injury at the end of the season. Had a good Mets career. Uh, some people might go, oh, you know, not in not in unsung hero. But I think when you specifically look at 86 and what he could, what he was thought, what he, we thought he was going to be coming into that season and, and, and how he was going to fit into the team uh, and maybe be uh, behind the likes of Gooden and, and Darling uh, to, to rise up to the best pitcher on the best staff in Mets history, uh, I think puts him rightly puts him here at the top of the list. What he was expected to do and what he did were far different. So mm-hmm. even if he was expected to fill a role, people don't remember it to the way that they should, which is, no, he didn't have the talent. He didn't have the fastball and the curveball Dwight Gooden had. But he had a better season than Doc did. And he was the best they had to offer at the biggest times in a year that to many, especially if you're sitting like me in my 40s, because I didn't live through 1969, was the best team that the Mets have ever had. And, you know, that's hopefully until 2023 although that remains to be seen. We'll have more lists coming during the season and more coming at you as we get uh, now just a few days away from opening day. As always, you can keep up with Brian at BrianWright86 on Twitter and me at Casey Stern and everywhere that you get the unfiltered podcast and your unfiltered revolution, Apple, Spotify, everywhere else you get your podcast. As always, we here at Unfiltered, thank you. We are presented by our good friends at Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.